Good morning. If you would, if you would turn with me back to Galatians 1. That's where we'll be today. We're going to continue our <clears throat> series in the book of Galatians. Um, and today we'll be um, diving into verses 11 through 24, the first chapter. Before we do that, I got a small confession I need to make to you guys. Uh, I have this reoccurring uh, sin issue in my life, and I need to uh, just come out with it. I, I have a real, just this reoccurring uh, lax in my leadership in, in our home. And it tends to happen on Friday nights uh, later. And the issue is this. Um, and those of you that have multiple kids in your home, you, you will understand. Uh, you finally get the kids in bed and you have a little bit of time to take a deep breath and to relax with your bride or your husband. And in our home, that means uh, a little bit of Briar's ice cream and usually some type of movie. And to sit down on the couch and just relax together and have some conversation, but just be near each other without kids poking prod and pulling on your pants leg, that kind of thing. Um, the only issue is I don't like that time to stop, to come to an end. That's like, ah, oh, finally. Beautiful, you know. Um, and so usually what happens in our home, my wife is much more disciplined than I. We'll get into a movie and we'll get about halfway through it and and she starts to lean on me a little harder and a little harder and I can tell she's going to sleep. And then she'll look at me and say, hey, let's turn this off. It's, it's, it's time. We should, we should go to bed, get some rest. I'm not having any of it. See, there's something about getting into a movie and stopping it halfway through <laughs> that drives me insane. I don't care if it takes me to 3 a.m. I'm staying up and I'm going to finish that thing. We're in the middle of a journey. We haven't arrived yet. This, this is amazing to me, particularly in, like, I like the rags to riches type stories where, you know, it's just really hard, really dark for a while, and then you end up in a good place at the end. And we just watched one uh, the other, other day, The Blind Side. I don't know if you, you've seen that. Um, story of a young man who was a football player in high school, 18-year-old um, young man who found himself homeless and just a lot of just huge issues. And um, the beautiful thing is these, this family takes him in, loves him, cares for him. He ends up being an NFL football player. It's an amazing story. It makes bazillions of dollars. It's a great story. But at the moment that Sandrine wanted to turn that off, we were still in the homeless, sleeping in the laundromat, had a little Walmart bag full of, you know, like a, a pair of underwear and a T-shirt. And, and I, I'm not going to bet on that. I'm not going to sleep well tonight. First of, first of all, I don't know, well, I do know how the story ends in that one, but... We hadn't gotten there yet, and we were still in this dark place. Why do you think we like rags to riches stories so much? Why do they draw us in 
to the point where we can't turn them off midway. I think it's because we know that an 18-year-old young man should not be on the streets by himself, should not be living in a laundromat, sleeping on other people's couches. There's something about that that is just not right. And so we want to see the story end righted. The story where he gets drafted in the NFL, makes bazillions of dollars, can own all kinds of houses. It's a beautiful thing. But as we approach the text today, Paul's going to tell us about an even more beautiful rags to riches story. One that knows of poverty far beyond homelessness. Spiritual poverty under the wrath of God. Set free to a life that he could not even imagine. You see, for those of you who have come to know Christ, it's your story too. And so today as we approach the text, let's pray. And let's ask God to really move upon our hearts as we work through this amazing rags to riches story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need your help today. We need to see your story. We need to see the gospel with new eyes. Some of us have never seen the gospel. Some of us don't know the gospel. For some of us, it's a distant memory. For some of us, it's just... some set of stale beliefs. God, today, through your spirit, would you radically transform our hearts? Would you allow the scales to come off our eyes and reveal to us once again the amazing, beautiful, unadulterated gospel? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. So, starting with verse 11, Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when he, God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, 
was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now... In what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by the sight by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. This passage begins a larger section, one that runs from uh, chapter eleven or chapter one, verse eleven through chapter two. It's um, known as an autobiographical autobiographical section of this book, and we need to understand though this section. Is not Paul is not telling his story for mere motivational purposes. He's not saying, hey, check out this rags to riches story. That's not the point. The point is that he's still in the middle of defending the gospel of grace. And here, most uniquely, he's using his personal testimony to refute the teaching of the false teachers and their claims that his apostolic office and his message are insufficient at some point, in some way. And he's making it clear to the church and to us that the nature of the gospel is both objective and experiential. Let me say that again. The gospel is both objective and experiential. Now, before you blow your buttons and call me a heretic, let me tell you exactly what I'm not saying. I'm trying to get your attention. I was going to say the gospel is both objective and subjective, but I was afraid I'd lose you at that point and you'd be long gone and wouldn't listen to the rest of what I was saying. So let me tell you exactly what I'm not saying by saying that the gospel is objective and experiential. I'm not saying that the Christian faith is just the memorization of some specific truths and that simple understanding saves you. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that your faith is based on a feeling or a subjective experience that no one can question. Those are the things I'm not saying. What I am saying and what this text is teaching us today is that the gospel is something that happened outside of us but it's also something that must happen to us. So, for the first part, the gospel is the objective truth because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look back with me to verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was it taught was, it, was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we have to look at 
is if you look at this, he says, this did not come, this message, this gospel that he's preaching did not come from man. He didn't come up with it. He wasn't taught it. God, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior of the world, gave it to him. Now, look at the connection back to Galatians 1.1. Paul says, I'm an apostle, not sent from man nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. These two verses are connected because Paul connects the truth of his apostolic office and the truth of his message. And that if one stands or one falls, they both fall or they both stand. If Paul was not an apostle, then his claims of authority and truth collapse. Likewise, if his gospel proves to be of human invention, then he forfeits the right to be called an apostle. This is how Paul would identify himself and his gospel in Romans 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's gospel is from God and not from man. It is God's good news. God, not according to man, not, not received or taught to the apostle, but comes from Christ. It is the gospel of God. Paul preaches what he received directly from the risen Christ. And listen to this. It's not subject Therefore, it's not subject to ingenuity, intuition, or the emotions and feelings of man. It's not subject to that. It's divine revelation. This was God's plan of redeeming a fallen world. It is objective because it happened outside of you and me. It happened... It happened in a moment in history. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in order that Jesus might reveal God's redemptive plan and fulfill it. Jesus teaches in John 3 this, And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This was God's divine plan, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. This was God's divine plan there's a best-selling book that's been out for i don't know it's been out for a long time but it's called conversations with god and it sold like two and a half million copies some crazy number the author neil walsh says that one day he simply started writing down his direct conversations with god However, the God that Walsh speaks of is not Christian nor identified with any other major religion. Walsh presents a God who satisfies the spiritual yearnings of our culture. And this is, this is <clears throat> excuse me, this, is the following, this following conversation is, is a way that Walsh describes his interaction with God and reveals kind of the core beliefs of his spirituality. 
God says to Walsh, I cannot tell you my truth until you stop telling me yours. Walsh's response in the conversation. But my truth about God comes from you. God says, who said so? And Walsh said, others. God said, what others? Walsh's response, leaders, ministers, rabbis, priests, books, the Bible for heaven's sake. And God says, those are not authoritative sources. Walsh's response, they're not? God, no. Then what is, says Walsh? And this is the way that Walsh interprets his God. Listen to your feelings, God says. Listen to your highest thoughts. Listen to your experience. Whenever any one of these differ from what you've been told or heard from teachers or read in any books, forget the words. Listen to your feelings. Listen to your highest thoughts. Have you ever wondered why you and I have such a hard time accepting the gospel of grace? Have you ever thought about that? I think it's because the human mind and the gospel of, the, the, the gospel of grace to the human mind is just counterintuitive. It just doesn't make sense. You see, because grace is about receiving and submission. We want it to be about feeling and earning and achieving. We want the rags to riches story to be about me and about the way that I pulled up my bootstraps and made it happen. This was a crappy life and I made it great. That's not the gospel. The gospel is a hard thing for most of us because we want to live in a self-made reality like Walsh's. We don't want God's revelation. We want to think with our feelings. Better yet, we want to allow our feelings to do our thinking for us. So here's our dilemma. We give our emotions and our feelings the authority that rightly belongs to God into his word. And we recreate the gospel in our own image. You see, this is what Paul was arguing against. He said, not according to man. Our daily gospel, with the little bits of change that we put in there to fit our own inclinations and our own feelings, is all about man. It comes directly from man. I don't know about you, but my feelings change on a dime. Not just daily. They change moment by moment. I can be driving in the van with my family, with great joy in my heart, and lots of fun going on in, the house, in our family, and everybody's singing and having a good time, and in a moment, I can go to rage. Why is that? Because my heart is sinful and my feelings are fickle. That's why. I had this image. When I was little, we used to take a super ball, 
if you know what that is. And we'd get in a room, my brother and I, and we would throw it as hard as we could. We'd try to get in the smallest room we could, and we'd get it, and we'd throw it as hard as we could, and that thing would take off and ricochet all around there, and we would just see who was the first one to get hit. And we would try to dodge it. Dodging a Super Bowl is crazy because you can't make sense of it. It doesn't go the same direction every time. It depends on the angle that it hits the wall. It depends on what wall it hits. It depends on the ceiling or whatever. You can't navigate that. You're going to get hit. You throw it hard, and then the next thing you know, somebody goes, pow, oh. And we laughed, and we did it again. It's the same thing with your feelings. They are fickle. You cannot depend on them. They go all directions all the time. You cannot trust them for your eternal life. This is why it is so important to understand that the gospel in its essence is objective. Knox Chamberlain puts it this way. The gospel is purely indicative. Its purpose, its purpose, the gospel's purpose is to proclaim saving events, not to prescribe a pattern of conduct. Paul has already given us the objective essence of the gospel. He says in verse 4, we studied earlier, that Christ came Gave himself for our sins that we might be delivered from this present evil age. So the essence, the objective truth of the gospel is Christ died for our sins. This historic saving event you had nothing to do with outside of your sin nailing our Savior to the cross. It happened outside of you. It did not, it wasn't because of you. It didn't matter how you felt about it. It still happened. It doesn't matter if you make a decision for Christ. It still happened. Christ went to the cross, died for the sins of this world, and gave you the opportunity to have eternal life. It's a done deal. You can't change that. Doesn't matter how many blogs you write, doesn't matter how many books you write and sells $2.5 million, you can't change that. It's objective truth. And your feelings upon that truth are irrelevant. You see, the gospel is the gospel of God. It's not a human concoction that can be changed at any whim. It didn't originate with a man, but with God. It didn't come out of Paul's head. It came out of God's heart. And was revealed to Paul by none other than the risen Christ himself. So it's objective truth, the gospel is. But it is also, at the same time, experiential in its nature. While the message of the gospel is unchanging. And the saving events of Christ's atoning work on the cross cannot be altered. We all come to faith in Christ in unique experiences of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul here, in the next few verses, 
gives us a great example of the way that he uses his testimony to witness to the power of the gospel and the truth of it. Not to mention he gives us a great method. Okay, the method is this. Paul talks about pre-conversion, what his life was like, talks about how God converted him, and then he talks about what happened after that. You might want to write that down. In a year of sharing Christ boldly, that ought to be in the back of your mind. Hmm, what was my life like pre-Christ? What was, what did God do in my life to convert me? And wow, what is it like afterwards? It's an amazing way to share the gospel. So how does Paul, what is Paul saying here? Verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism and how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. First of all, something that just jumped out at me is the fact that Paul calls it the church of God. Obviously, something's changed in Paul's life. He would never have said that. Would have never said that before God changed his heart. You see, Paul uses his pre-conversion life to illustrate that nothing could have changed his mind. No human argument, no amount of reflection on his life. No long days in the woods thinking. If you read Acts 8 and 9, you'll get a deeper understanding of Paul's bigotry and his fanatical devotion to Judaism. When he says he was trying to destroy it, he was doing a pretty doggone good job. He was killing people. He was doing the best job he could to snuff out this very gospel. And I'm thankful for people who hone their apologetical skills, but I got a feeling that if you went toe-to-toe with Paul, he would have eaten you up and spit you out for lunch. You see, Paul was the unreachable one. He was the one so far gone that, I mean, do you want to share Christ boldly with somebody who's killing Christians? I would probably think twice about it. You see, Paul, like us, like we talked about two weeks ago, needed a divine rescuer. He needed God to come and to do something. And that's the way Paul explains exactly what happened in his life. The little phrase, but when God. Circle that, think about it. There's a huge distinction that starts at the very beginning of verse 15. Something drastic takes place. If you compare verses 13 through 14 with verses 15 through 16, you can clearly see it by the subject of the verbs. In 13 and 14, Paul talks about, I persecuted, I tried to destroy. In 15 and 16, 
the whole thing shifts to God. God set me apart. God called me by his grace. God revealed his son. The whole, Paul's whole understanding of life flipped upside down. This is what God has done. This is what God did to me. Two things that you can get out of both of those sets of verses. From 13 and 14, that our sin is ours. It's personal. It's yours. You own it. But out of 15 and 16, that salvation is God's. But when God, this is God's work of salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerating a sinful human heart. Notice how each stage throughout this passage focuses on God's initiative and his grace. Listen to me. Christianity is not so much something that you choose to believe. It is something that happens to you. Stop. Now, I paused there because I wanted your mind to stay there. But do not allow Satan to whisper in your ear right now with this little ditty that I'm sure he is. Oh, here it comes, old Calvinism, predestination. Before Paul was in his mother's womb, he was set up, yes. But this is not a Calvinistic and Arminian debate. This is a God thing. God is the divine initiator of salvation. We are not. Now, John Wesley would never be described as a Calvinist. Yet, when you read his journal and read about how he experienced the gospel, it's very similar to what we've just read from Paul. So let me read it to you. This was on May 24th, 1738. He says this, In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, he knows exactly what time it was, about a quarter before nine, while the leader was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did not trust in myself, but I trusted in Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and of death. You may say you know the gospel, and I am very glad. All I want to know is your life, has your life been radically changed? Because not only is the gospel objective truth, it is experiential truth as well. There is no way to say that I know the gospel and 
your life remain unchanged. You may know the tenets of Christianity, but you do not know the gospel. And why do I say that? Is because the gospel is a person. It is a person and it is God's saving events. It is Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The one who came and took on flesh lived a sinless life, and bore your sin on the cross, the wrath of God poured out on him in your stead. You can't have an experience of that and the Spirit of God coming upon you and not be changed. Because the gospel is not only objective truth, it is power. It is the power of the resurrected Christ. Christ died for your sins, but he rose again to give you life. Paul would explain it in Romans 1.16 as this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to Jews first and then to the Greeks. So, the gospel is objective, it happened outside of you, but it must also happen to you. So today, which side of the fence have you been living on? Are you the champion of objective truth? Yet without no life-changing experience of the living Christ? Or Are you all experience and feeling? And your truth is whatever your experience is. You cannot separate these two. This is the gospel. So today, where are you? Maybe today, God is graciously warming your heart could this day be your day could this be could April 25th 2010 be like what John Wesley experienced on May 24th 1738 that you came to know and were assured that Christ had taken away your sins and saved you from the law of sin and death. Maybe today's your day. Lastly, what happens in Paul's life? What is Paul's post-conversion What is he doing? Well, he's traveling all over. And he's preaching the gospel in many different places to a lot of folks who are lost. But he concludes this section with these words. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which are in Christ, 
But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. The persecutor becomes the preacher. Is that amazing to you? I'm telling you, the people in Judea, this was an amazing news flash. This was huge. The guy that's been killing us is now preaching the gospel. That's pretty big news. It'd be, it, it's even bigger, but it would be much like somebody I graduated from high school with sitting in this room going, okay, connect the dots for me. Drug addict, alcoholic, preacher? How does that work? Tell me about that. That's interesting. And here's the wonderful, the most wonderful piece of this, these verses is verse 24. And they were glorifying God because of me. They weren't glorifying me. They weren't glorifying me. They were looking to the one who had saved me. The one who had radically transformed my life. The impact of a radically transformed life was the worship of God. So here's my question. How radical is your life? Do you know the gospel? What are the effects of the gospel on your life right now? Some of you have amazing stories. And when I look out at the faces in this, in this crowd, I glorify God because I know what's going on. I've seen the stories. I've seen God radically transform families. Radically transform lives. I only wonder if you're a bit like me, that you haven't spent time sitting with your own story and marveling at God's glory in it. When Paul writes about his story, it's worship. When he lives that out, others worship. It's an amazing thing. It's an absolutely amazing thing. So, what's hindering you? Dogmatic approaches to the gospel? Feeling-oriented lifestyles? What is it? When your family members look at you, do they glorify God? Or do they shake their head? When your coworkers bump up against you, are they drawn toward the glorification of God? What about the people in this church? Because this is the context of this letter. Who, were glor who was glorifying God? The church. The church saw what God was doing in Paul's life and they raised their hands in the air and glorified God. It's an amazing thing. 
this life changed by the gospel. It's powerful. In 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 16, later, much later in Paul's life, he was reflecting back on this event, and this is what he writes. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So what about you? What about me? Do we really know the gospel? Have we experienced the gospel in such a way that our lives are radically Changed and being lived out in that radical change? Do you realize that this great salvation is not without purpose? You have found mercy so that Jesus might use you radically. That your radical, transformed life would be an example to those who would believe for eternal life. There's a purpose. You've been called, you've been set apart for a purpose. It's not the same purpose as Paul's, but it is a purpose to preach the gospel and to live it out. So how are you doing? As a worship team comes, I would encourage you along with myself, to repent of all things that stand in way of this. Whether they be feeling-oriented or prideful doctrine. God is gracious. And he will pour that grace on you but he calls us to repent and to turn. And so as we respond in singing, don't let these questions fly past you. Evaluate your heart. Come down here, repent, pray, ask God to reveal to you. If you don't know, ask him to reveal to you what is hindering the joy of the gospel flowing through you to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our hearts are wicked and deceptive and far beyond our own evaluation, so we ask that you would open them to the Spirit and that you would have your way in us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us but to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.